Good morning. I'm Pastor Mike, and I want to invite you to turn in uh, your Bibles or grab one in the pews in front of you as we dive into uh, another week of looking at the Ten Words, the Decalogue, or as some people call it, the Ten Commandments. We are focused on Exodus 20, verses 4 through 6. Interesting bit of trivia for you as we look at this passage, but it's actually more than trivia, is that we have uh, what we have historically called Oriental rugs. I don't know if you're aware of this or not, but the reason they exist is in part due to this commandment, the interpretation of it. Uh, we not only have Oriental rugs, but we have, uh, I don't know if it's a whole genre of, of art, but particularly in the Mediterranean area, uh, a way of making beautiful mosaics out of tiles with geometric patterns, in part due to this command. Because many followers of Islam, that is Muslims, view this command as forbidding any art that recreates something on earth or in heaven. They take it very literally, and while I respect their attempt to apply God's word, I think the consistency there is wonderful, but they kind of miss the real point of what this command is about. It is something much more profound than just art. There's something much deeper going on in this passage. So as we look together today at Exodus chapter 20, verses 4 through 6, would you consider with me something much deeper than works of art, but consider the desires of your heart? So we look together here at Exodus 20, Verses 4 through 6 are our focus, but I want to read Exodus 20, verses 1 through 6, as they kind of hang together. This is God's Word. God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children, on the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing loving kindness to thousands to those who love me and keep my commandments. This is God's word. Father, we thank you that you have spoken, that you have revealed these words from the fire and the smoke of Mount Sinai and revealed them as the truth that we need to relate to you and to others. And you reveal them in the context of relationship with you. Lord, would you deliver us from our own house of slavery? Would you meet us here today and transform us 
that we might love You and serve You. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I, I can appreciate the beauty of, of an oriental rug and those beautiful tile mosaics. I think they're wonderful. Uh, the artwork that has come from what I would say is a excessive restriction of viewing this command. It's beautiful. But there is something here way beyond. It's more uh, deeper than carved images and carpet patterns. It's more than what you touch or taste or, or feel or even what you do, what you watch on TV or what you buy, how you spend your time. There is something much more profound. It is deep. And the essence of it is, piggybacking on from last week of, of what the Lord would show us from that first commandment, that the Lord wants to be first in your life. He wants to be the most important being in your life. And that's the first and second commandment as they hang together. He wants us to love and serve Him only. As we saw last week, acknowledging God's role in your life is what He wants first of all. And here as we dig in, we see the Lord wants you to serve Him above all. You choose Yahweh, which is the Hebrew word there behind the word the Lord in our English translations. You just choose Yahweh over your way. That's what it really boils down to as we dig in here. It's not merely with your outward actions, but with your heart. With your heart. And that's the main thing I want us to look at today. So our first heading on the outline, if you're following along there, is that this passage, this command, is really a matter of the heart and not works of art. The problem is making a God substitute. Putting something else in the place of God. If you look at verses 4 and 5 together, you can, you can see it really clearly as you just carefully read. Verse 4, You should not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. Verse 5, You shall not worship them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Those verses are tied together logically and, and grammatically. They, 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 they're connected. They're interrelated. Uh, you can't isolate part of it that says, don't make an, a likeness of what is on heaven above or earth beneath. You have to read the whole thing. And what it says is, the Lord is prohibiting making of an idol or likeness Worshipping or serving them. And the them is the, the idol or likeness. doesn't want you to worship or serve them. Why? And not because they just exist. Not because you're creating some work of art. But because he is a jealous God. Now clearly, he has no reason to be jealous of just some creation. right? Why, why would God be jealous of the pew here in the front row or this plant? Right? There's, there's nothing intrinsic about that that would cause jealousy. Where does the jealousy arise? The jealousy arises because we make things that are God substitutes. 
that we would give our hearts to something else. God is jealous with a righteous, holy, perfect jealousy when we give our hearts to something else. Later on, as Moses leads the people and he's about to head into the promised land with them, in Deuteronomy chapter 4, he says to them what has come to be known as the Shema from the Hebrew word for hear in Deuteronomy 6, 4-7. through He says what? Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all your mind, your soul, and your strength. And then what does Jesus say in Matthew 22, 37-40? He says that's the first and great commandment. That you would love the Lord your God with all your heart and mind and soul and strength. In other words, don't make any substitute for God. Don't put anything in your life that is more important than God. That God has to be first. He wants your heart. Like a marriage partner. You know, there, is, there is a good and right jealousy that a husband and wife can engage in. If their partner's affection seems to be heading in a different direction, there's a jealousy. It can lead to sin in many ways. It can be jealous of things that aren't really that harmful. But there is a, a good and right thing to say, you know what, I want your affection. A husband's affection should be for his wife first of all, and a wife's for her husband first of all. And God as our groom, and we are his bride, God wants our affection. And he doesn't want to share it with anyone else. And that's what's going on here. It's, it's, it's this idea that as the Bible unfolds it, that we are in an exclusive relationship with God. That he wants your whole heart that you would not give it to anyone else. And there's some really awkward passages. We don't have time to read them today, and I'm, it would take way too long to, to kind of make them suitable and appropriate for our, our audience here of younger people and older people. But just go read Ezekiel 16 sometime, or spend some time reading through Hosea. And the language that God uses of a people that would turn away from Him, it's harsh. It, it, it's... It's strong language of what it means for us to commit adultery, of what it means for us to, to set our hearts on someone else or something else instead of or in place of God. So in, in other words, it's, it's the abuse of an object, not its very existence, that God is concerned about. It is making something or someone more important than it ought to be. It's the use or abuse, not the existence. He says, don't make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what's in heaven above or on the earth beneath. And tying that with the next passage, and with just the, the nature of those two words, right? the, the word for idol here is, is a word from hewing or carving something. That it is a making of something, but it's more than that. It's for worship. It's something that you would, as verse 5 says, literally verse 5, it says, worship. 
You shall not worship them. The, the language there is of bowing down. So it's not that you've made something. It's that you've made something to be a God substitute. You've made something that you are now abusing and you are bowing down to and saying, this, this is what I need. This will help me. And we'll see it in Exodus as you go through this book, right? The, the, Moses goes back up on the mountain and the people take gold and they throw it in the fire and they make a calf and they bow down to it and say, this is our God. That is a God substitute. That is something that in itself is not wrong by making something out of gold, but becomes very wrong because they bow down to it and say, this is our God. They serve the creation rather than the creator. We're talking about idols. Not about just making things. In fact, I'm not sure and just what uh, other folks, especially uh, Islam does with the rest of Exodus. Because if you just keep reading in Exodus, there's some interesting things that happen, including God-ordained worship, where God says, I want you to make a, a temple, a, a tabernacle. I want you to make this tent, and I'm going to meet you there. And I don't want you to just make this tent, but I want you to make it very elaborately. And he gives specific instructions about the materials, about how to make it, the tent poles, and everything else. And he says, not only that, he says, I want you to make a carrying case for these tablets that now symbolize and codify our relationship. These ten words. I want you to put them in this case called an ark. And on top of that ark, I want you to put cherubim. And it goes into, in Exodus 37, some, some detail about what these cherubim look like. And the cherubim are, are angels. They're representations of something in heaven, right? They're, they're, they're representations of them. And then, in fact, God says, not only do I want you to put these cherubim on top of that ark, right at the seat of worship, but I want you to make these lampstands, and they should have these patterns on them that look like almond blossoms. Exodus 37 has several of these kind of things where you go, God is saying to make something that is like not only something on earth, but something in heaven. So there, there must be more to it than just making something. And it is just that, right? It is that we would make a God substitute that we would worship. That we would abuse anything in creation and look to it for hope. We would bow down, whether it's literally or figuratively, and serve that thing. You see that word in verse 5. You shall not worship them, bow down, or serve them. Now, the word there is very common for a servant, even a slave. Someone who gives their whole life to another's bidding. That's idolatry. That's the problem, not the object, but that we would bow down and offer our lives in service to anything more than God. 
that he would not have first place in our hearts and lives. And so just a quick definition then. An idol is something you serve with loyalty in place of the Lord. If you want to know if you have an idol, you ask yourself, am I serving anything loyally in place of the Lord? Am I being more faithful to something else or someone else than I am to God? And the thing that happens is that this, this, this loyalty, this idolatry becomes a slavery. That you lose control even while you kind of have this illusion of control. And you lose yourself as you begin more and more to sacrifice to something that will not satisfy. And that makes more and more demands and provides less and less of its promise. And so that, that idea here, that first of all, it's, it's a matter of the heart and not works of art. To really understand that, I want us to go just a little deeper and explore the nature of idols. The nature of idols. Of serving something loyally in place of the Lord. The thing about idols is that they can have deep and wide roots. They, 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 they could be anything. And just stepping back for a second, there are many ways to look at idolatry and, and the human heart and how we handle our desires and actions and motivations and all of that. We are very complex creations of God. So it's, it, any, kind of, any kind of model or pattern or anytime you start talking about the principles involved here, it's hard to encompass it all. So, so don't just settle on one, okay, this is, this is idolatry and it always looks like this. Or like, it's, it's complicated. But having said that, and that we are complicated, there are some things that go on, some helpful observations we can make. One of which is, there's very often, I think I mentioned this when we were looking at the book of Acts, there's very often some, some faraway idol, some, some big overarching thing that we look to to give us meaning and purpose. Right? You think about uh, back in Acts chapter 19 when we were looking at that riot in Ephesus. The people there had this sense of meaning and purpose that, that we are, we are the, the keepers of Artemis of the Ephesians. Right? This, is, this is our purpose in life that everyone knows that we keep this God safe. Right? That's what the people of Ephesus would say. They had this overarching purpose of serving Artemis. That's, that, that gave them a sense of meaning and, and status. And people looked to them and, and they were proud of that. But then there was a, a closer, nearer idol that they really liked to make money too. And the craftsmen really enjoyed the business that they were in of making these temple shrines and selling them for good money. And Paul, you remember, was a threat as he spoke of a God who's not worshipped in that way, of the true God. And people began to give up at false worship in various areas. So there's this big overarching. We get this purpose and meaning by being the people of Artemis and this more practical. It's a good living we're making. We're comfortable and something's threatening it. So they're living for those two purposes, right? There's a kind of functional thing that meets your day-to-day -day needs, and then this overarching thing. Those are a typical pattern, and that can be very broad. 
And if you look through the scriptures, you see so many different examples, not just of, of those pagans, but you see the people of God. The, the serpent that Moses will lift up in the wilderness when they head out there to save the people from the snakes that are all around them, that serpent he lifts up becomes an object of worship later on that must be destroyed. The, the very kings and princes that God would raise up can become a source of confidence. We can trust in horses and chariots or we can boast in the name of the Lord our God. We can value good things more than God. These idols, the nature of them is they have deep and wide roots. They can provide overarching meaning. They can provide a functional day-to-day need. The thing is that they bear painful fruit. The thing about idols is they bear painful fruit. You could even call it thorns rather than fruit. That what they yield is harm, brokenness, pain. Because what happens is, in the nature of our hearts, uh, one theologian hundreds of years ago said our, our hearts The human heart is an idol factory. We can just generate these things. We're broken. And what happens is that that with an idol, we have a desire for something that's unmet. You're not going to make an idol of something, typically, that you don't have a, a, a need for, that you don't feel some sort of longing. But what happens is you, have, you start to have an idol when there is some unmet need or desire in your life that begins to grow. And it even could be a good thing. Maybe your children don't respect you the way they should. Or maybe, maybe you're not getting that promotion at work that you think you deserve. Or maybe your friends aren't calling you. Maybe you don't have the relationship with someone that you want. It could be anything. It could be, these are good things, right? But then you begin from that desire. And of course, there are bad things, right? There, there, are, there are bad things we can desire, and they're just bad from the beginning. But they can even become more enslaving, right? So the, the, even the good desire, we can dwell on it to the point where it just grows, and that desire becomes something more than just a desire. It becomes a demand. Where we begin to feel, I cannot survive without this. I was just reading through in my uh, devotional times during the week. I'm going through a, a Bible in the year plan. And I'm on at least year two of that plan. So, you know, if you struggle with that, I do too, okay? Okay. I've got like a one-year plan, and it's taking me years to get through it. But I want to go through systematically. I want to read the whole Bible regularly. And so just keep at it. Uh, But anyway, I'm reading, and I was in that part of, uh, I think it's 2 Samuel. It might be in Chronicles. It might be both. Where one of David's sons begins to desire one of the daughters 
of David from another mother. Uh, it's Amnon, Tamar, uh, and at least the Absaloms murdering this guy. And this is a great picture of, of idolatry. He began more and more to want to have a relationship, an inappropriate relationship with this person. And he made it happen. And he was miserable and despised and rejected her. That's, that's the way idolatry works. We, we can't survive. I can't carry on unless I have this desire. And then when and if, very often it's not even fulfilled, but when it is, it's never what we want it to be. It's never satisfying. It is like drinking salt water when you're thirsty. It just keeps making you more thirsty. That's the nature of idolatry. Desire becomes a demand. I need it. I can't live without it. I, I deserve it. And there's always an element of truth to those kind of things. Your children should respect you. And you probably do deserve more credit at work than you get. And your spouse probably should treat you better than they do. And you can leverage that in your own heart so that that becomes not merely a desire, it becomes a demand, and you begin to judge. And you build your case, and you collect more data, and you reinforce all of this, and eventually you begin to punish. And it could be with gossip and slander, it could be with complaining and griping, it could be with uh, you know, anonymous posts on the internet somewhere, or whatever it is. You begin to judge. It could be you just pull back. And you don't give to your partner the love and attention that they deserve. It could be that you don't pull back. You attack verbally, sarcastically. All kinds of ways these things play out where a desire becomes a demand and we begin to judge and punish. And for our crossfire people, you realize what I'm talking about there, right? We talked about how our responses to conflict can be either to escape or to attack. When something happens, we can pull back or we can lay into somebody. And there are different flavors of that. And there's a healthy response called peacemaking. That's what we're studying with the youth on Sunday nights. Come on out, six o'clock. 6th graders through 12th graders. So this, this is the nature of idols. That They have deep and wide roots. They bear this painful fruit. And what happens is a lasting harvest of harm. This is the, the way you make sense of, of this interesting part at the end where God says, I'm a jealous God, verse 5, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children on the third and fourth generations of those who hate me but showing love and kindness to thousands to those who love me and keep my commandments. We could spend a lot of time on this part. I want to try to summarize it. First of all, note, note the language of hate and love. It's similar to what Jesus said in our, our New Testament reading, right? You can't have two masters. You'll hate the one and love the other. You'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. The language is very strong, but that's the nature of the case, right? If you're not putting God first, 
then he is viewing it as you hate him. That's his calculus, right? You either love me first of all, or you hate me. He doesn't have a middle ground. So there's that sense of it, but then there's this other sense of, well, it sounds like he's punishing children for the sins of the fathers. That's not quite what's going on here. The nature of the word iniquity, when he says, I visit the iniquity of the fathers on the children, and it's only to the third and fourth generation, but he shows loving kindness to thousands of generations, to those who love me and keep my commandments. Iniquity, the nature of this word is not that of sin, as in uh, the most common word for sin, which is hata in the Hebrew, which means missing the mark, you fall short, right? It's not the other common word for sin, which is pesach, which is transgression, you step over the line. So those two words are one you fall short, the other you cross over and trespass. This word has this sense of twisting, bending, deviating. And it is the nature of humanity and our relational reality that we are in families and the ways we relate to each other impact the ways we relate to everyone else. It is the nature of the case that when we practice iniquity, when we are warped and twisted in our worship, that we can't help but pass that down and on to other people. And it is in fact God's grace that he seems to let that die out within, what does he say? Three or four generations. You see this all over the place. If, if you pay attention, you, you will see this kind of generational twistedness, sin. It, it is common, right? When children of alcoholics and addicts have similar patterns. They vary, and we are complex beings, so you can't boil it down and say it's always this, it's always that, right? But if you grow up in a home and your parents are addicts, you struggle with certain things. You, you grow up in a home and your parents divorce, you have certain patterns. And but for the grace of God, you're going to respond, and typically we respond by either saying, I'm not going to be like them, or we don't pay any attention, we become like them. So some Children of abuse become abusive. Some children of abuse become doormats. God's grace is that he says, you know, that kind of twistedness, I'll let it die out. It decays. It has a half-life. But there's even more than that, right? Because God has a better plan. That God would give us the victory before that. That this lasting harvest of harm can be ended more quickly than that even. The nature of idols is they're deep and wide roots. They bear this painful fruit and they have a lasting harvest of harm. But for the grace of God. But for the love of God that works within the law of fire. So the nature of fire is if you stick your hand in the fire, it burns, right? Our, our Upper Darby Township Council 
could vote at their next meeting to say fire no longer burns, right? It would be foolish because everyone would walk out of there and fire would still burn, right? They could say, we'll take down those silly signs that no one's paying attention to under the stop signs that say, you know, full stop free, rolling stops, $140, right? We could take those signs down and they could go do that, right? They could take down the stop signs and say, we're just going to do away with stop signs and it's no longer a law. You won't get a ticket if you roll through that intersection because there's no stop sign. It's not a law, right? But the law of fire, it can't be changed. It is. And that's the aspect of this law of God. It's written on our hearts. It's the way He created the world. That there, if you sin, there is an effect. And there's very often a brokenness and a twistedness that gets carried on, that gets populated. And there's some aspects of this you can apply to the histories of nations and people groups and families. If you study family trees and you, and, you, and you look at their genealogies, you can see patterns of brokennesses. It'd be an interesting research project to see. Do they, do they shift every three, four generations? I think God's word is true. It would happen. There might be exceptions, but I think the general rule would prove that out, right? That this is the way it works. This is the way God made us. That if we are not loving God with all of our heart and mind and soul and strength, and if we are not loving our neighbor as ourselves, there's literally going to be hell to pay. Because it's the way God made the universe. It's the way God made you and I. It's the way God made all things. That if we don't understand His will, if we don't put Him first to seek and serve Him above all else, it will be broken. And ultimately, the experiences we have here, as bad as they are, pale in comparison to the eternal judgment we will face for having broken his law, for having suppressed his truth, for having failed to love God and our neighbor as we ought. But in the grace of God, right here in Exodus 20, as we read at the very beginning of it, we see that that God's love is at work. God spoke these words and said, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. This God is a deliverer. This God freed this people. They did not deserve His attention and love, certainly not His rescue, but He brings them out because that's who He is. He brings them out because He wants to set them free. He brings them out, not that they can indulge in selfishness, but they can serve Him and have a true and lasting peace. And they can have a confidence in their lives and be set free from the idols of their hearts. To be brought out from the oppression, not merely of Egypt and Pharaoh and hard work, but from the idolatry and slavery that has enslaved their hearts. That they would worship any other God. Brothers and sisters, that's his promise here, and then he goes to unfold it as he speaks this law to them. He is at the same time about to prepare for them and explain to them how do they live in this relationship with God when they sin and they fall short. And he sets up that tabernacle. He sets up that tent, and he says, look, I'm going to live with you. I'm going to be with you. And he, he, he emphasizes all of that, right? Then he goes to the book of Leviticus and in detail, says, you're, you're not going to be able to live with me. I will kill you. He says, 
I will destroy you because I am so holy. So how will you live with me? He says, look, here's the way. There has to be blood. Sin has to be punished. It has to be taken care of. And he institutes the sacrifices. Various sacrifices for various sins. And not one of them was actually powerful enough to take away sin because the blood of bulls and goats cannot cleanse from sin. It was always intended to point to God's way. When in the fullness of time, Jesus would come to this earth and He would take that fire of judgment upon Himself on that cross. That He would pay the full penalty and rise victorious because the law of fire has been satisfied. Because the judgment price has been paid. And He not only does that to just take care of your past, but He sends His Spirit into your hearts that you can now live differently from this moment on. That you can look at His Word and understand it by the Spirit at work in you and in a community of believers that we might be different now. That we might have hope that we can overcome the addictions and it's not going to be easy. That we can overcome the abuse and the trauma we've experienced. That we can overcome the brokenness in our relationships and find healing, forgiveness. And apologies and repentance. It's all offered free from this God who would rescue if we would put our faith and confidence in Him. In other words, what? If we would serve Him, if we would trust Him, if we would turn our hearts to Him and say, you are what I most need. And He would say, He would say, that's what I most want. You're putting me first. You're putting me above your pride. You're putting me above your own strength above your own reputation. You're putting me, God says, above everything else. And that's what I always wanted. And when you do that, I will give you everything else. I will accept you. I will treat you as my righteous sons and daughters. Though you have done wrong, I will love you with an everlasting love. I will never forsake you. I will fight and win your battles. Even as I have conquered sin and death and the devil, I, I will conquer everything for you. I will accept you as my people and I will forgive all of your sins. That's some profound stuff in this passage. Way beyond what we work out in this physical world, which don't hear me saying that doesn't matter. It does. But the first order of business is to take care of the hearts. The Lord wants you to serve Him above all. Will you pray with me? Lord Jesus, Help us to, to identify those tendencies to idolatry. Lord, I thank you that in many ways, when, when you, you bring us to a saving faith in Jesus, you set us free from a lot of junk. But we also recognize, Lord, there are some patterns and temptations. Some of it's generational. It's the iniquity. It's the twisting that's handed down. That some of that we're going to battle with all of our lives. 
Would you help us to see that, Lord? Would you put us in your word to understand what your will is for relationships, for, for, for life, for how we ought to treat one another, for how we ought to work and rest, for how we ought to speak, for how we ought to treat property? Lord, would you work in us all of those ways by your Spirit in a community that's all committed to that same thing, that we are putting you first, Lord. So we're open. We're vulnerable. We know we're broken. And we know, Lord, you meet us where we are, but you don't leave us there. And you're doing great things in and through us, Lord. Would you work in, the, in us, Lord? Would you help us to identify those idols? Or what, are, what we're desiring too much before it's too late. Would you help us, O oh Lord, to see where maybe we're punishing others because of some demand that we have of what we think we deserve? Would you help us, O oh Lord, to identify the good in that desire and repent of it being too big? Would you help us to move forward and where we have punished others, where we have played God, withdrawing or attacking, would you give us grace and humility not only to ask forgiveness, but to grant it to one another? Would you work in this, O oh Lord, for our good, for your glory, we pray in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.